Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Let's pray together. Gracious God, unveil your truth to us. That's our sincere prayer. Open up the scriptures to us. Show us the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we need you so much for this. And we rely on you. Our trust is in you. And we believe your promise that you will. So help us, each of us, me to communicate the truth of God accurately and for the people to hear it accurately that we would continue in the Word, the Word being the Word of God, and be disciples, and know the truth, and the truth make us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, everyone. If you believe you've got the real thing, you don't actually fear scrutiny. You believe you've got a genuine gold ring or a diamond ring, you're not afraid of the process of it going to the jewelers, someone looking at it who's more expert than someone else. You're not scared of that process because you believe and you know it to be the genuine article, authentic. You know what it is. And because it is what it is, you don't fear that process because you believe it to be a genuine, authentic thing of value. It will be seen to be what it is. And if it turns out to be the case that it is not what you thought it was, you'd actually want to know that. You're not fearing that. You'd want to know. You'd rather 
want to know, you'd rather know than not know. I say all this because in the realm of Bible interpretation, there are many interpretations of the passage that we have before us today. And the principle should be this. Let's look at the text. Let's see it in its context. And let's not fear that process. Because when we do, we'll come out with the truth. And it means that if we have the truth already, we'll be more assured of it. And if we find out what we have believed is a falsehood, we should be, therefore, ready to discard it. Away with the traditions of man. Let us know the truth. The truth of God's Word. And when it's true, it'll be seen to be true. Oftentimes I'm in conversations with people and they throw a verse at me. And I say, can we look at that in its context? And I'm surprised the often answer I receive is, no, I don't need to. Oh, oh, yes, we do. I'm prepared to look at that in context. Are you? I'm not afraid. Let's go to the jeweler. Uh, Let's go and see what is really before us as we quote the text. It's been well said. Every heretic has a text. Think about that. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their texts. But look at those verses in context and what they believe is a pretext for falsehood. If it's true, it'll be seen to be true. And I say that because this particular passage before us is used by some to declare that Christians can lose salvation. And I believe that's a total misunderstanding of the passage. Uh, For some, they just say, I don't believe that uh, eternal security is a thing taught in the Bible, and Hebrews 6 is evidence of that. They just throw that. Hebrews 6, verse 4 onwards, there you go, nothing more to say. And I say, can we look at that? Can we look at it in context? And they say, I don't need to. I say, yes, you do. They say, I don't. And that's the end of the conversation. What we've had so far in Hebrews as to the last few verses of chapter 5 is something of a scolding. You should be teaching others by now, but you need milk. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, he's a baby, and you are back to the bottle. That is the message there. What's interesting as we look at Hebrews chapter 5 is it speaks of Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, notice that phrase, in the word of righteousness, in the message of righteousness. What if we can hold our place in Hebrews and go back to Romans, back to the left, if you've got a paper Bible, Romans chapter 9, punch in the right place in your phones if that's the case. Uh, Romans chapter 9. And here we're reading of the exclusive blessings of being Jewish as to heritage. Romans 8 has outlined the fact that God has an elect people and nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on, Paul the writer, the author, to speak of the blessings known only to Israel. Verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. This is Romans 9, verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ, cut off from the Messiah, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's basically saying this, if it would help. I so love the Israeli people, me being one of them, 
that I would gladly cut off myself from eternal life if it meant they would come into the kingdom. Of course, that would never happen, but that is the apostolic heart of Paul. This is not some cold-hearted apostle. He weeps, he longs for the salvation of his fellow countrymen. And he speaks of them in the terms of the word they in verse 4. They are Israelites. And then he lists the blessings that they alone have. The Chinese cannot say this. The people of Italy cannot say this. Uh, Americans cannot say this. None of us can say it. But they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And he goes on. Now, let's go to chapter 10. We would say that these people of Israel had great zeal, and that's what's brought forth in these next few verses. But let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, religious life is not enough. Religious zeal is not enough. People have the mistaken idea if someone is sincere, that's all God asks for. No, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the context meaning the people of Israel, for them is that they may be saved. So they have all this, they have all these blessings, they have this list that no other nation can say, we've got that, we have that, we've got that, we have that. No one else could say it but Israel, and yet they still need to be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're zealous, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of, look at that next phrase, the righteousness of God. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here the message has been already conveyed to us that we are not righteous in ourselves. We have nothing to offer but our sin. As is the sin that made the sacrifice of Christ necessary. We are not righteous but seeking to establish their own. They, the people of Israel were in rebellion. The leaders of Israel were in, were in rebellion against God, not submitting to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is perfect. They think, well, I've got a little bit. I can use that in my relationship with God. And the message of the gospel starts with the bad news that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64, 4 verse 6. You see, the religious mind could understand it if the Bible had said, all our bad deeds are really filthy before God. But Isaiah says, all our best works are filthy. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And here's the message, that's why we need the Savior. For Christ, the Messiah, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the message. Christ is the righteousness of the believer. You can't get there by your self-effort, but Christ has lived the life you and I should have lived, died the death we should have died. He died in our place, he lived in our place, and he gives us not only forgiveness of sins as we believe in him, but the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What amazing gospel it is. Christ is the end of the law. He's the goal of the law. What the law outlined, Christ fulfilled, 
And that is the righteousness of the believer. And we need to be established in that. And back to Hebrews, the message is this. You and I are still babies if we don't grasp the message of righteousness. What a message it is. Yet it's possible to be entrusted with the very oracles of God. That's what Romans 3.1 says of Israel. They've got that advantage. Romans 3.1, let me simply quote it. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's been well said. How odd of God to choose the Jews. Why didn't he wait for the English? I mean, why? That's the, that, that was it. But no, he, he, for his own purposes, he chose Israel. You alone have I known amongst the nations, is the declaration of the prophets. He know, it's not know about. I don't know about the Chinese. Of course he knows about them. But only Israel did he have with them a covenant, redemptive relationship. You only have I known. So, for you and I to get into the kingdom, we come in because of a Jew. I hope you're not racist towards Jews because your Savior is Jewish. He's the Jewish Messiah. And we are given a righteousness, get this, of a Jew to stand before God. His own righteousness. He kept the law in our place. And Jesus made this statement in John chapter 4, salvation is from the Jews. This basically is a Jewish book. The patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles, Jewish. Thank God for the Jews. So it's possible to be very religious, but not saved. That's the point. Let's go to Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, on the basis of this, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Literally, leaving the beginning of Christ's word. There's a message. The Jews were hoping for the Messiah. He is their hope, and yet he has come. And that's the message. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus wasn't born to Mary and Joseph Christ. Christ is a title. In Greek, it's Christos. It comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, meaning Messiah or the Anointed One. So when we're saying Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus is the Messiah. And so we need to leave, it says, the elementary doctrine of the Messiah and go on to maturity. That's where the writer wants to take us in Hebrews, to perfection, to maturity. Don't stay where you are. In fact, you cannot be static in your Christian life. To stay static is to go back. I talked of that last time. I should by now be an expert in German. I learned German in high school for five years, but because I didn't meet too many Germans over here after I moved, I lost whatever I had. I should be an expert in German, but someone needs to teach me the ABCs. Back to the bottle, John, as regard to German. Well, that's what the message was in Hebrews 5. But we need to go on to maturity. Go on, Christian. Go on, Christian. Go on, Christian. Not laying again a foundation of, and then six doctrines are listed as foundation doctrines. Now, we know this. A foundation has a function only in a building. 
You don't need a foundation unless you're building something. And God is wanting to build you. God is wanting to build His church. And God is wanting the completion of the building. But first, the foundation must be laid. And verse 3 before us tells us that before further building can occur, we need a permit. And God is the one who gives us that permit. But first, He inspects the foundation. So God is inspecting the foundation. It should be laid. And once it is laid, He comes and inspects it and gives us, hopefully, a permit so that further building can occur in our Christian lives. I don't know if you've ever seen that passage this way, but it really is what it's teaching. Now, here's what I want to say, and I hope it's the most helpful thing I can say today. We are, in any Bible passage, to ask questions of the passage. Who's writing? Who is receiving the message? We need to ask the who question, the what question, the where question, the when question, all of these questions, the why question. So let's remind ourselves, who's receiving this letter? And the answer is Hebrew Christians. It is the epistle to the Hebrews. And the key to this passage, I believe, is to understand who this letter is written to. And the answer, of course, is Jews. And so the writer is explaining to Jews that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than Joshua. He's better. He's better. He's better than Mel- Melchizedek. He's better than the old... T- His covenant is better. Everything's better. Everything's better. That's the key word in the epistle. Don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. And the people that the writer is addressing are Hebrew Christians who are under severe pressure. Pressure to go back to the trappings and the sacrifices of old covenant life back to Jewish life, back to the synagogue. And at this time, the people of uh, this letter who were receiving it would have many benefits if they just go back. They could have life in the synagogue. And for them, that's life with a capital L. And without it, you are worse than homeless. You are ostracized. There is simply in renouncing Jesus, that's all they'd have to do, still be Old Testament in their thinking. They'd have a welcome in the Jewish society. They'd have security, job security. That's a big thing. Life in the synagogue, the center point of their society, and no threat of persecution. All they have to do is say, I don't believe in Jesus. That's a big deal. Actually, it's a huge deal for them to stand with Jesus. And that's where the writer goes. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of Moses who endured persecution with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. See the big picture. Heaven's real. You've come now. You've come now to heavenly Jerusalem. The congregation may look sparse, but if you could see in the spiritual realm, there is nothing as fantastic and amazing as the Christian service. You're coming to an innumerable company of angels in festal array. You can't see that with earthly eyes, but if you could, you'd be amazed. It makes the Super Bowl look like two or three people playing in a park. That's where you've come. See it. See Jesus. And the message is Jesus is better. He's worth it. He's worth it. Even though it might cost you all you have in this world, you might lose a lot for standing with Christ. He's worth it. Now let's remember this. Gentile conversion 
is very different from Jewish conversion. For Gentiles, there's a word we would use, licentiousness. It means to lack legal or moral restraint. That is true of the Gentile. He's got no boundaries and he is an idolater. And so when a Gentile is converted, he leaves his idols and his sexual immorality. He leaves that and comes to Christ. For the Jews, oftentimes they're outwardly righteous and they have, as we've already seen, a works righteousness approach to God. It's hypocritical. They're full of dead men's bones. They're full of iniquity, but they look on the outside at least very different from Gentiles. Let's look at these six doctrines that are outlined before us. Let's read verse 1 again. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of the Messiah, Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, and then he lists six doctrines, repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. Look at those six doctrines, if you would. I've been studying these doctrines for years, decades, and sometimes we focus on the minutia. But just this week, I took a step back and thought, what was the big picture? And the big picture is this. All of these doctrines were taught in the Old Covenant. All of them. Every teacher of the law could wax eloquent about all of them. They knew about repentance. They knew about faith. They knew about washings. Hmm. They knew about laying on of hands. But now, here's the big picture. Are you ready? These Hebrew Christians now had to understand these doctrines in the light of the coming of Christ. That's the big point. Is there anything distinctly Christian in the list? Look at those six doctrines. Let me give you the answer. No. The Pharisees could and did teach all of these things. But the writer is saying this. I can't leave you here. We've got to go on. I can't leave you in this condition where all you know is the old covenant understanding of these things. We've got to go on to perfection and leave these trappings behind and see Christ in all his power. Religion's not enough. You must move from a Jewish foundation to a Christian foundation. Christian repentance. What does that look like? Christian faith. Christian baptism. Christian laying on of hands. Christian understanding of the resurrection of the dead. Christian understanding of eternal judgment. Now, nothing that is Christian will be opposed to what we understand in the Old Testament. But there's much more to understand than what we have in the, New, the Old Testament. Theologians speak of this as progressive revelation. What they mean by that is, as you and I start reading our Bibles in Genesis, we know a little because the light of God's Word is just cracked open, the door is cracked open, we see some things. But as we continue reading, by the time we get to Revelation 22, the end of our Bible, the full light has come. And we learn as we read that God is giving more and more insight into who Jesus is and what He's done. 
Certainly we know more than Abraham, but what we know is not contradictory to Abraham. He got in the kingdom the same way we do. Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. So, nothing of the old was untrue, but its fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. Before we go any further, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Keep your place in Hebrews, back to the book of Acts. This passage was read earlier in our service. Peter was preaching. But let's remind ourselves, to whom was he preaching? And the answer is 100%. Maybe 99.9, but probably 100% Jewish audience. Why? This is the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and they spilled out into the streets. Verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. These were Jews who were coming back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And Peter, standing with the eleven, preached the first gospel sermon after the resurrection of Christ. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. Who's you? The people in Jerusalem? By God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Jesus had done all that, but Peter could not have said that if his message was in Ephesus or Corinth. But standing in Jerusalem, he could say, you cried out, crucify him. But that wasn't the last word. God raised him from the dead. What a message. This same Peter who had denied Christ three times, now filled with the Holy Spirit, was bold. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be bold too. God raised in verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skeptics say, it's not possible for a resurrection. God's assessment is, it's not possible he'd stay dead. And I raised him. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that he may not be shaken. We could read on. Verse 26, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, the realm of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of who? Israel. No. Therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. He's not letting them off the hook. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
They believed it. They believed the message. You're not cut to the heart if you don't believe it. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is the response of people that are persuaded by the message. And Peter said to them, well, let's have a three-month think tank and we'll get back to you. No. He knew. Repent and be baptized. Now, you obviously believe, but repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of who? Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it goes on. They were baptized, verse 41. Verse 42, they continued in the fellowship of the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers. They became ardent followers of Jesus as members in the local church. They were added to the church. Verse 47 says, So, let's remind ourselves who we're reading about here. Who's the audience? It's a 100% Jewish audience celebrating Pentecost in Jerusalem. They ask, what shall we do? The answer comes back, repent. They believe. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, recognize and identify with Jesus as your Messiah. God has raised him from the dead and demonstrated that he is Lord and Christ and become fully accepted, functioning members in the local church. As we look at this, we realize that's the message. They had to move on from simply what the synagogue was officially teaching and come to Christ, see him as the goal of the prophets, the goal of the patriarchs, the goal. Everything spoke and was leading up to him. After his resurrection, Jesus made that clear in the uh, talk he had on the road to Emmaus, bringing out from the three sections of the scriptures himself. So let's look at these six doctrines, repentance from dead works. Well, what's all that about? Repentance from works not pleasing to God. You're in Hebrews chapter 6, hopefully. Go to chapter 9, just a couple of pages over. Repentance from dead works. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself with them without blemish to God, purify our conscience from what? Dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? Well, repentance, we know that. It's a word that means a change of mind and it results in a change in behavior. It's a 180 about face. You're going one way, you recognize you're going the wrong way and you're about face. You turn in the next moment in a different direction. So dead works are dead actions. Not only sins, but specifically actions that typify the life of an unregenerate man. You see, the Bible's declaration concerning man outside of Christ is not that he's weak or he's sick, but he's dead. We were born in that condition. All of us were born DOA, dead on arrival. Not physically, 
Not emotionally, but if you're living physically, unless you've come to Christ, you are dead spiritually. That's your condition. That's my condition outside of Christ. You he made alive, Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, who were dead, Greek word nekros. It means dead. You can look it up. Dead like a corpse. You had no interest in Christ by nature. You might say, but I've always felt, uh, yeah, I've always felt a longing for Christ. Well, maybe you had a kind mom and dad who taught you the scriptures. But biblically, there was a time when you didn't want this and then God acted to make you want it by giving you a new heart. You might not know the time. Somewhere in the age of uh, three to seven, you might have been converted. It doesn't matter if you don't know the time, God does. And it's happened, and that's evidenced by the fact that you are now alive. You've got a heart that now wants to know Christ. Where did that come from? Not from yourself. So dead works, what are they? Dead actions. These are actions that arise from our dead nature. Every action outside of Christ is a dead work, and so we should repent of that. John Calvin writes, either it means because it works death, or because it arises from the spiritual death of the soul. So, repentance from dead works, and the next phrase, in a faith toward God, those two go together. Thomas Brooks once said this, till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. Faith toward God. You see, these doctrines should be distinguished but never separated. Let me explain that. If I was to separate your head from your body, that would not be good. That would do you harm. But if I distinguish between your head and your body, I've done you no harm. And so we must never separate these two, but we must distinguish between the two. Repentance and faith are two sides of the coin that is saving faith. When God gives you saving faith, it's a repentant faith. You're turning away from all you know to be wrong and you're turning to Christ. Two sides of the same coin in, t- in true, true conversion. Let me quote Acts chapter 20, verse 20, that you might have 20-20 vision. Paul said this, Luke writing, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks. I love that. Both have the same gospel. Both have the same message. Both have the same message that they have to now do. This is what you have to do. Of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, the two of them together. Sometimes in the scripture you might read one of them. And in another place you might read the other. You might read, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You might read, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But biblically the two of them go together. Repentance and faith. Verse 2 of Hebrews 6. And of instruction about washings. Now this is really insightful because it really refers to teachings about oblations, washings, baptisms. The word baptism or washing is in the plural. 
And that's interesting to me because in Ephesians we read there's one Lord, one faith. How many baptisms? One. One baptism. But here it speaks of baptisms in the plural. What's going on? Well, again, the message is don't lay again the foundation you got just by your your Jewish inheritance where you learned a lot about washings. Recognize that in Christian baptism there's only one. Many washings for the Jew. One Lord, one faith, one baptism for the Christian. As a note in the ESV study Bible, it reads this. The word here is plural in Greek, baptismos, where the plural may refer to teaching about the differences between Jewish purification rites and Christian baptisms. Or baptism, singular. So I believe that's what's going on. Learn what Christ and his baptism signifies. And that's why in Acts 2, these people may have had all of the washings and ceremonies of the Jews. They were there at Pentecost, but now they need Christian baptism. Be baptized and identified with Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Identify with him. Next phrase, the laying on of hands. Here I believe the Old Covenant and New Covenant understanding is very similar. There was a commissioning for service. In fact, if you've got a moment, I think you do, let's go to Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27. Fourth book of our Bible, verse 15. I'm just going to jump into the text. Moses spoke to the Lord... Numbers 27, 15, saying, Let the Lord, yet let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, and that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. Here's the response of God, Numbers 27, 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, A man in whom is the Spirit, look at this next phrase, and lay your hand on him. Hebrews talks of the laying on of hands. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. The laying on of hands was involved with commissioning. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation, the people of Israel, may obey. On to the right to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. Next book, Deuteronomy 34. And here we're going to read the result of what happened. As Moses did this. Here's the result. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Here's why. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So, laying on of hands speaks of a commissioning and an impartation. That's true in the New Testament. We're not going to go to all the scriptures regarding that, but that is what is in view. Next phrase, the resurrection of the dead. How many can remember the book of Job, chapter 19? I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he shall take his stand upon the earth. And in my flesh 
I shall see God. Speaks of the resurrection of the body. So the Old Testament was very familiar with this, but there's much more that we learn in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about that. It's almost a whole chapter on resurrection. Next phrase, an eternal judgment. We're in Hebrews chapter 6. There's no need to turn there. Let me simply quote it. Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this, who can finish it? The judgment. It's interesting to me that when it comes to the doctrine of hell... The one we learn most of in Scripture regarding that doctrine, the doctrine of eternal punishment, is the Lord Jesus himself. It's as if God did not entrust that message with Isaiah or Ezekiel, although the prophets certainly referred to these things. But the bulk, by far, more than 90%, much more than 90% of all we know about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. I think if it was Isaiah or Paul, we'd have said, oh, he's just off there. But when it's Jesus, the Son of God, speaking, we're listening. And God has made it clear, this is something to avoid. You don't want to go there. You must believe in Jesus Christ. You must receive the gospel. Because hell is a real place. And because he loved us, he warned us of it. Who expounds the doctrine of hell more than any other in Scripture? The Lord Jesus. God did not entrust that message to some grumpy prophet. Well, we say, look, he was just having a bad day. So the six doctrines are listed, and then we read this. And this we will do, if God permits. What will we do? We'll move on to perfection. We'll move on to maturity, if God permits. Let me ask you, did you get your permit? You can only get your permit if you've made the transition from a Jewish foundation to a Christian foundation of who Jesus is. I know I'm on the right lines because 1 Corinthians 3.11 said this, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. To make the transition from simply being a Jew who observes the Jewish law is to come to Christ and see that he's the fulfillment, that he is the ultimate sacrifice, and that everything pointed to him. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. Jews of sin, Gentiles of sin, but God loved this world so much, he became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, and lived a sinless life, went to all the feasts, did all the regulations, fulfilled the law for us, so that this one, this righteous one, the only righteous one, went to that cruel, rugged cross. And on the cross... God imputed to him, laid on him the iniquity of us all, the rebellion of us all. Our sins were laid on him. And he was punished in our place. And he died the death we should have died and 
was buried, and 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear, this, ladies and gentlemen, is the essence of the gospel. He rose from the dead. He's at the place of all authority right now, and anyone who calls on his name repents and believes this good news. Not only are their sins forgiven, because Christ legally paid the debt that was owed, but the righteous life of Christ, his righteousness is given to us. And the Jews, according to Romans 10, don't get that unless God intervenes and shows them what righteousness is. And if we don't get it, we're just babies. Have you got it? Have you got the permit? Can God move us on? As a pastor, I long for a healthy congregation where people know what they know and why they know it, why they believe it. Why do you believe that you can stand before God if you were to die right now? If you start with, well, I did this, you haven't understood. John, why should God let you into heaven? I can think of no reason except there was a substitute who stood in my place. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And great God, unless that is true, I've got no hope of standing before you. None. My answer is, in two words, why should God let me into heaven? Christ alone. That's it. The Father says, that's right. My son died in your place. And it was my plan from all eternity for him to go to the cross for guilty sinners just like you. Come in. Because just as I'd welcome my son, I welcome you. You are in my son. You've received the message, and that's it. Is there nothing more you want me to do? Not to get into heaven. Salvation is by grace through faith. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But the Christian, their boast is not that they had done this, they'd done that, they'd given this, they'd given that, they'd been a church member, or back in the Old Testament, they'd given their tithes, they did their thing, they had done what was required, that's why they're in. No, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20. So why is anyone saved? Because righteousness is a gift. But, but, but don't we have to? No. But, 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 goats, but. Sheep say, nah. But, but, but I, but I want to, I've done this, I know. Renounce it. Renounce your dead works. Renounce your good works. Your good works, according to Calvin, were splendid vices. There's always that mixture of the glory of God, plus I want to be seen. I want to give big, but I want people to notice, or at least someone to notice that it's me. I'm going to build a hospital, but can I have my name on the side? John C. Lincoln. Hey, there we go. Should you stand in heaven, around the throne, there won't be an accommodation for anything other than the praise of Jesus Christ because only he did what he did to save you. You did none of it. And so around the throne, Abraham, David, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, all of us will be singing, all glory to the Lamb that was slain. 
For by his blood he purchased the people for himself. Why are you in heaven? I don't know why he chose me, but I know how he got me in. By who he is and what he did, plus nothing. Understand that if you've understood righteousness and you've moved from babyhood to maturity, but there's much more to progress into, and that's what we'll get into next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. I trust all under the sound of my voice would leave the trappings of religion in the false sense of religion. There's a right sense of religion. There is true religion. But Lord, we don't want the trappings. We want to know that we're saved. We want to know that we have eternal life and it's found not in our doing but in his. We're saved by works, none of them ours. All of them his. And we're a grateful people. We're saved. My heart's desire is that they be saved. We're saved because we've understood righteousness has come to us in a person. And the message is he lived that righteous life, never having to say sorry to you or anyone else. Oh, sorry about that, never. I'm sorry, Father, I did that, never. His testimony was, I always do that which pleases him. And the father bellowed out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Lord, we thank you for this righteousness that is perfect. Though we can grow in our sanctification, and surely we must, we cannot grow in our justification. It's a once-for-all declaration. You're just. You're reckoned righteous. You're free of guilt. Reckoned righteous with the righteousness of my son. Not merely just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if I'd always obeyed. What a gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.